welcome to the USDCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. On the Feast of Saints Thomas More and John Fisher, the USCCB announced that Archbishop Thomas Wensky of Miami had been appointed to serve as acting chairman of the Committee for Religious Liberty. Archbishop Wensky has long been an advocate for religious freedom, and he is well known as an energetic and service-oriented leader, a native Floridian. He was ordained to the priesthood in Miami in 1976 and installed as fourth Archbishop of Miami in He's joining us today to talk about his hopes for the committee over the coming months and years. Archbishop Wensky, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me on this podcast, and I'm here to answer whatever questions uh, you might have and and hopefully give some orientation to the the mission and tasks before us on this religious committee, religious liberty committee. Well, I wonder if first you could tell us, Archbishop Winsky, um, a little bit about yourself. Um, how did you first feel called, uh, you know, feel that you were being called to ministry? And I think something that's probably mysterious to a lot of us lay people is how do you end up going from a uh, priest to Archbishop of Miami? <laughs> well, interesting. Uh, I, I felt called to be a priest since I was, I think, in the third grade. Of course, as the years went on, I began to understand better the implications of such a call. You know, when you're 18 or 19 or 20, the implications are a lot more obvious to you than when you were uh, in the third grade, for example. But uh, it was something that always stayed with me. So I wanted to be a priest all my life, and I never could see myself doing anything else, even when uh, those implications were very obvious. Uh, you know, and I said, "Well, do I really want to be a priest?" The answer was, "Yes, I do." And and so I was, uh, you know, uh, wanting to embrace anything or everything that being a priest uh, uh, implied. And so I, I was ordained a priest at a young age. I was uh, 25 years old, a few months uh, short of my 26th birthday. And I was ordained after 12 years of seminary education. Uh, that included uh, four years of high school seminary which are now, you know, like the dinosaur, they're mostly extinct in most, uh, most parts of the world. But uh, so I was four years in a high school seminary, four years in a college seminary, four years in our uh, uh, postgraduate uh, theological seminary, and uh, then ordained a priest. Uh, I spent uh, three years in a parish in inner city Miami, where I was basically the the English-speaking priest, because the pastor was from Spain, the other associate pastor was from Cuba. So during the uh, during our meals, during our arguments, our meetings, all that was conducted in Spanish, and uh, and I would say the English masses, but also many of the Spanish masses. Uh, the English mass was the smallest mass of that parish, and so once a month they'd let me have the big mass, which was a Spanish mass. And as I was in that parish, and I learned Spanish in the seminary, and I learned it with a Cuban accent, and many times uh, I can tell a Cuban what uh, part of Cuba I was born in, and they'll tell me they knew my uncle. So <laughs> I, I did pretty well with Spanish. But uh, in that parish, there was also a small group of Haitians. And uh, so I started learning a few words in Haitian Creole to be welcoming to the Haitian community that was uh, just beginning to arrive in South Florida in greater numbers. 
and the archbishop found out about that, and and then uh, shortly after he found out, I was assigned to work full time with the Haitian community, and so I went to Haiti for three months for kind of an immersion in Haitian culture and Haitian language, and I I returned from Haiti in September of. 1979, and I worked with the Haitian community in South Florida up until uh, January of uh, 1998, uh, and that was a couple months after I was ordained auxiliary bishop of Miami, which took place in September of 1997. So during that during that period of time with the Haitian community, I did a uh, kind of a circuit writing ministry because I had three Haitian mission churches, one in Miami, one in Pompano, one in Fort Lauderdale. And then I also covered uh, Haitian uh, communities that were celebrating masses as far south as Homestead, which is about 40 miles south of uh, Miami, and as far north as Fort Pierce, which is about 100 miles north, or as Mockley, which is about 90 miles west. And so we, we covered the Haitian community uh, and a Haitian priest working with us, with me, we we you know covered about five masses in my main church at Notre Dame, and another six masses in other places spread throughout South Florida. When I became uh, auxiliary bishop, I, I had to give that work up. But by that time, after 18 years working with the Haitian Haitian ministry, I uh, we had some younger Haitian priests that came up through the seminary and were ordained and willing to uh, to step in, and they certainly did. And I also, for a time as auxiliary bishop, was the Archdiocesan Director of Catholic Charities for, uh, for Miami, which uh, also led me to get involved with uh, uh, Cuba, Central America, uh, and continue my involvement in Haiti. After serving as auxiliary bishop for six years in Miami, I was named co-juder bishop in Orlando. And then I spent uh, seven years in Orlando as the bishop of Orlando. And then in uh, June, June 1st, 19, uh, 2010, I came back to Miami as Archbishop. June 1st, of course, is the uh, beginning of hurricane season here in the South. And so I, I came back uh, at the beginning of hurricane season. And uh, so here I am. As you, you know, recounting your ministry, it's clear, I mean, you've really spent your life serving in a church in South Florida in an area where you have this diverse group of immigrants and even even a lot of people who come to Florida from other parts of the United States. It's just a very diverse um, area. And it seems like you seem like you have, you know, flourished and, and enjoyed it. I wonder what what is your what has been your approach to ministry, what you're called to do that you think has allowed you to to, to really to really thrive in this kind of environment. Well, I, my father was born in Poland, so I always had a empathy for the immigrant experience because um, in one sense, a first generation uh, American, at least on my father's side. And my mother was Polish American, born in Detroit, but in a Polish neighborhood, et cetera. So I've always felt very ethnic, very Polish. And so when I encountered these ethnic groups here in uh, South Florida, it was easy for me to feel empathy with them, and and God gave me a gift to acquire their languages. I still struggle with Polish, but I speak Spanish fairly well, and I speak Haitian Creole 
better than I speak English. So uh, I can mm-hmm. I can feel at home uh, in any of these environments. And and I, I think uh, when somebody was asking me what was I doing with the Haitians, I said, well, I would uh, my I would define my 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 mission. Maybe it's my vision, but my vision was to uh, was two things. As a as a priest working in the Haitian community, one of the things I had to do was to make the church visible to the Haitian community, the Catholic Church visible to that community. I remember, you know, I would go up to places like Del Rey or uh, or West Palm Beach and visit Haitians in those communities, and and they would tell me there was no Catholic church. In, in, in the neighborhood, in their area. And I said, no, I grew up here. There is a Catholic church. It's just, it's just a few blocks away. But they didn't know it because that particular Catholic church only had mass in English and people were white. The Haitians didn't, you know, didn't feel welcome. That Catholic church now, one of the, church, the church I was baptized in, the pastor is now a Haitian, and one of the masses there is an Haitian Creole. So the thing was to make the church visible to the Haitians. The other thing was to make the Haitians visible to the church so that the Catholic church, the local Catholic church, would know that these people are, are here, these, uh, these, uh, these brothers and sisters are among them. And, and so uh, that was the dual mission of, a, of an ethnic apostolate. And again, I think, uh, you know, we all are children of God, uh, but the be- and so the, the church is God's house, but the best way to make somebody feel comfortable in the father's house is to speak their mother's language, their mother tongue. And so that was one of the big emphases that I had in my ministry over these past uh, 40 plus years uh, here in the Archdiocese of Miami when we have an Archdiocese in celebration. It's uh, very common that uh, the, the celebration is, is done trilingually with uh, a reading in, in English, a reading in Spanish, a reading in Creole, and songs taken from each of those uh, uh, language groups, and uh, uh, in a way that 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 works rather seamlessly here and very comfortably without any uh, people being uh, uptight about it or uh, uh, seemingly not uh, natural about it. So it's a it's a it's a you know a beautiful experience, you know. Uh, America has this great capacity uh, to to absorb people. I remember my father, born in Poland. I I introduced him to a, a and this was in the 80s, a, a young Polish man that had just been released from detention. He was applying for asylum, so they released him from detention. And and my father told him, he said, you know, if you were, you know, in, a, in four or five years, you're going to be an American. He says, uh, but that, you know, if you were in France or in, you know, in Germany, you can spend your whole life there, but you, you would never be a Frenchman or a German. But here in the United States, in a few years, you're going to be an American. Archbishop Wenski, I didn't realize that we have we share that Polish uh, heritage in common. My grandfather is from Poland as well. But I do know that you uh, ride motorcycles. So how do people react when you ride your motorcycle all throughout South Florida? Well, uh, most people that know about it think it's cool, you know, and I, I'm, I'm happy by that. Of course. A few, a, cool. few people, a few people, uh, you know, a few people uh, don't, don't like the idea of the bishop riding a motorcycle. I remember I, I got a uh, an email saying, you know, the Pope got a gift of a motorcycle and he sold it for charity. Why don't you do that? And I said, I take my bike out on, on, uh, 
on, on charity rides and I make money doing that way. So if the Pope sold his bike for charity, I'm going to keep my bike and make money for charity. Good, <laughs> yeah. good spin, well played. But, but you know, when I'm <laughs> on the bike, I don't usually ride like this, you know, with the collar or anything like that, because, you know, I think if I did that, I'd become a traffic hazard and they might pull me over and give me a ticket. So I, I try <laughs> to ride with the proper equipment, helmet, goggles, jacket when it's not too hot. And, uh, and, and I think most of the time, you know, when I, I'm riding on the highway, people don't recognize me, but I'm always very surprised when I get to like the Harley Davidson dealership and I pull into the, uh, the driveway and I still have my helmet on and my sun, my, my sunglasses on and maybe a, a leather jacket and I get off the bike and before I can take off my, my helmet, they say, Hey, Archbishop, how you doing? And I say, how'd you know it was me? You know, they, just, they just recognized me. So or they, or they probably know your bike, maybe, you know, they might know the bike too. But anyway, it's one of the uh, great things about living in Florida because uh, you can bike almost 12 months a year, right? Just yeah. And you're exercising your freedom, connecting well, you it know, back. <laughs> religious <laughs> liberty. Well, yeah. So let me, let me ask you about um, religious liberty a little bit. You know, we're tasked with, with this um, kind of a twofold issue in a way. Um, we're talking about the protection of the liberty of the church to carry out her mission and the promotion of religious freedom for all. I mean, it's a pretty big task. It touches on lots of areas of, of what the Catholic Church is doing. What do you see as the biggest challenge for religious freedom today? If there's one thing that really jumps out at you, one of the major challenges. Well, there are many challenges and uh, serious challenges. Uh, in one sense, you know, we have the First Amendment that protects uh, freedom of religion. Uh, the so-called separation of church and state is not to keep religious people out from participating in the life of their communities and the life of uh, of their of their cities and states and and, and bringing a contribution to government is supposed to keep the state out of, out of, from interfering with the affairs of the of the church or the religious community. So religious freedom is very important, and that's been one of the great blessings of the First Amendment. In the 19th century, Catholics were viewed suspicion uh, by our neighbors, you know, and uh, and it was the religion that First Amendment that protected us and and gave us an, uh, an, a uh, the space that we needed in order to in order to prosper, in order to really integrate ourselves into American life, and so religious freedom allowed Catholics to to uh, to become truly American without being marginalized or, 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 or discriminated against. There has been discrimination against us at different times. The, the most egregious one is the, uh, the strange interpretation of the separation of church and state that uh, leaves us out of participation and, or our parents out of uh, participation and, uh, and, and, and assistance for uh, choosing uh, the education of their children. Uh, the issue of vouchers and, and, and Catholic schools. You know, that's one long-going long uh, example of religious discrimination when uh, when Catholic parents who opt to send their kids to a Catholic school essentially have to pay twice. Once for the intuition of their kids in the, in the school, and then again to the taxes that they pay to support the public school system. But uh, generally speaking, the First Amendment has 
has given us, uh, you know, great opportunities in this country. So religious freedom uh, politically is very important, and, and, it, and all other freedoms really grow from religious freedom. But, you know, at the same time, right now we're also seeing uh, challenges to religious freedom coming from the, the culture. We have a very secularized culture, and uh, it's not always it's not only government that is uh, threatening religious freedom. Now those threats from religious freedom come from from other areas, uh, from business. Sometimes uh, we see this in the culture today that too often, uh, you know, religion is reduced to the subjective. Uh, that is, you know. It's your private opinion or your private thing, and you, whatever you do in the privacy of your own home is okay, but don't bring it out the house. You know, so you know, religious freedom is now equated almost to watching a, an X-rated movie or something like that. You know, you do it in the privacy of your own home. This is this is not, you know, what uh, you know religious freedom is about. It's it's more than a, a subjective thing because. Uh, religion is an objective fact. You know, we 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 not only believe uh, in something, but because we believe, we also or someone we belong to some something, and we belong to someone, and that belonging has a has a public aspect to it, and and public aspect uh, needs to be respected uh, by all because. You know, it's the it's not only the freedom to worship, but it's also the freedom to serve, the freedom to uh, to teach, etc. You're touching on something that that I've been thinking about lately, because you know most Americans will say, if you just say, do you do you think religious freedom is good? That almost all Americans will say yes. Ever everybody will say that. One of the things I realized, I, I was on a call, or, or I was in a conference call. Kind of thing with with um it was mostly it was a group of people that i'll just say is, is not normally who i would be on a conference call with uh, and, and it was very clear that they thought of religion and because they were talking about religious freedom but then the people that they had talking about religious freedom i mean they had at least two people who were atheists talking about their religious freedom and it was very clear the way that they were talking um that they thought of, of religion primarily, very subjectively, as you're saying, they thought of it mostly as an identity marker, like a way, and, and so they kind of grouped it in the same kind of um, basket of, of, of ideas that, that goes along with the idea of identity, that while religion, maybe it, it feels important to you, and that's fine, and that's good, but then there's no sense that, like, I, when I think of religion, and I think most people um, who are what you would consider like practicing Catholics, it's not simply a matter of our subjective sense of identity. It's, it's a matter of uh, uh, something has been, that there's something outside of myself that's the truth, and I have to conform myself to it. And it's not like I just made this up. Like, this is what I, this is what I have to, I have to live this way. And that's, uh, that's certainly very important, and that's the, the crisis points are today uh, because uh, religious freedom requires a certain uh, level of tolerance uh, and religious freedom has prospered or religions have prospered in the United States because there have been generally great tolerance to people of, of, of different 
uh, beliefs and faiths. And, uh, and we see that in our neighborhoods where you can see many, many types of churches or uh, synagogues or even mosques. But that tolerance uh, is, is seemingly running short these days because uh, people are increasingly less tolerant of traditional religious beliefs. A certain senator who is now running for a certain office on a judiciary committee interrogated a candidate for a judgeship, accused him of being a member of a, what she thought was a kind of a fringe group because that group did not believe in abortion, that group believed in traditional marriage. And so she questioned the man's qualifications to be a federal judge because he was a knight of Columbus. You know, that is, that is showing how intolerant uh, people have become towards people of deeply held religious beliefs. It's so interesting, and I love the way that you described it, Archbishop Wensky. Uh, I think you said um, objective reality of, like, it's we belong to a, a person, I think you said, like our relationship with Christ, and that extends into our relationship with other people. And that's really what our, you know, our religion, our faith calls us to live out that relationship in service to other people. And that can't... And as Catholics, we believe that the church is a visible uh, reality. Yeah. It's not just a spiritual reality that we, uh, that we feel when we gather together in prayer. The church is a visible reality that we, that we belong to. And uh, we are Catholics when we can uh, fully, uh, you know, belong to, uh, to, to the church. And the church is a, an important actor in civil society. It is so it, these are these mediating as one of those mediating institutions that make society healthy and strong. What are your hopes for what the committee uh, you know can accomplish? Well, you know this committee uh, as part of the U.S. Bishops Conference is probably the newest uh, standing committee. It, it started off as an ad hoc committee for a few years, and it's only about a decade ago I think that the committee was first organized and it was organized because of the growing threats to religious freedom and our especially to our freedom to serve we as bishops were looking around us and we saw how many of our catholic charities organizations were being discriminated against or excluded from participation in programs because of their adherence to catholic teachings we we see how our educational institutions are our schools are being threatened with lawsuits because we we want to hold uh, our our teachers to to certain standards of, of moral life and, and conformity to the teachings of the church. So that when we saw that, we knew that uh, in the United States uh, we were entering a new a new stage, partly because of the growing secularism of the culture here, and one that presented some dangers to the. Uh, uh, our religious freedom and our religious liberty. So uh, we had to we had to uh, think about that strategically, and, and that's what this committee helps the bishops of the United States to do. In recent months, we've seen some uh, some victories in the courts, and this is uh, you know uh, very uh, very important. Espinosa uh, versus the. Missouri Board of uh, whatever. Montana, yeah. Uh, Trinity Lutheran was against Missouri. 
yeah, yeah. that, that uh, was very important in uh, showing up uh, uh, the various voucher programs that uh, have benefited parents that want to take advantage of uh, of Catholic education for their children, and that uh, uh, help address a historical uh, discrimination against uh, Catholics and other people of faith, which were which was called uh, which was incorporated as Wayne Blaine amendments and 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 many state constitutions and many state laws, and so that was a very important uh, step. Here in Florida, you know, we have a uh, a program of uh, uh, called Step Up, which is a, a program that allows corporations to make donations uh, before their taxes to get tax credits uh, for uh, education. And then parents who are uh, eligible by income can apply for these and they can get up to about $5,600 a year that they can direct to the school of their choice. And so, Many parents are choosing Catholic education uh, using step up uh, scholarships. And those scholarships pretty much almost equal the cost of tuition in a Catholic school. So it's a huge benefit to a number of, uh, huge number of families in the state of Florida. Uh, uh, so that decision by the court was very important, but it, it, we see how and that is threatened because uh, here in Florida over the summer, there was a group of uh, uh, Democratic legislators in this in Tallahassee that were raising issues about this because they of their because they said that you know it was discriminating against uh, LGBT LGBT kids and, uh, and that's not true because the, the parents can parents choose the school and the parents had not reported any type of discrimination and but it was an attempt to whittle away at at this uh, corporate scholarship program. But, but what happened in uh, Missouri was important in that decision uh, by the Supreme Court. Another one was the uh, the one in Guadalupe, and uh, that was uh, the one in California in which the Supreme Court uh, supported the idea that, that teachers are in fact, in a manner of speaking, ministers in their, in their religious schools. And so it upheld a ministerial exception so that the faith-based school that defines the qualifications for the teachers and not the state. And so, you know, the state has no right to say who can be a minister or who can be a pastor in my church or in my, in my school. That's our that religious freedom says we make those decisions, not the state. So that was a very important victory. A smaller victory, also significant victory was the one that was had by the Little Sisters of the Poor with that contraceptive mandate. Now, it was a smaller victory because uh, basically the court uh, didn't decide that uh, the sisters were uh, completely right. It just said that uh, the president was correct and, and he had the authority to grant the exemption that he did. And so they, they, his exception of uh, giving relief to the sisters stood, but uh, another president could reverse it. And, and, and that means if there's another president that reverses it, the sisters will have to go back to court again and to fight another day to preserve their religious freedom, not to be coerced to act against their 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 deeply held religious beliefs. So we, you know, the past several months have given us some reason for uh, reasons to be uh, elated or satisfied, but at the same time, 
we see the storm clouds ahead and we know that religious liberty uh, is going to be a, a major issue that we will be facing as a nation and as a church in years to come. One of the things that in, in your discussing just now, some of these significant cases actually kind of gets at a question that I would like to ask you. Um, and this is really my last question. So I don't know if Mary has any, I'll let Mary get the last question, last follow-up. But uh, my last question is, you know, I my sense is that people who follow these issues, just it can actually be kind of get very stressed out, um, get very anxious uh, because they may not see what they can do because everything you're talking about is litigation at a very high level, you know. So a lot of it is litigation, but a lot of it uh, is determined by elections, too. You know, I think uh, the people that are listening to us and the people in the pews have to pay attention to the importance of uh, the challenges of being faithful and faith-filled citizens. You know, we, we have to seek to inform ourselves in order to, to vote intelligently and, and, and also to vote not for narrow self-interest, but to promote the common good, the common good of all. It's, it's a difficult challenge today because uh, in many ways, a, a really devout Catholic will feel himself to be an orphan in any of our political parties today. But we still have to make difficult decisions and, uh, and to be informed. You know, I remember several years ago when I was Bishop of Orlando, 14, 15 years ago, I was given a talk or a homily at, uh, at, a, at a convocation of our Catholic school teachers. And that homily, I spoke about religious freedom and I mentioned the Blaine Act and how that was, you know, responsible for, you know, the fact that we had difficulty in accessing public funds for the education of our children. And after that mass, I had several teachers that came up to me and they said they had never heard of the Blaine Act. And I would say, if you ask them, the average Catholic on the street, they would not know the Blaine Act or, or how, it, uh, how it has influenced us. And I think most, most Catholics today, you know, they don't think about the, uh, you know, the problem of uh, the fact that their tuition uh, payments are not tax deductible, et cetera. And they don't see that as an imposition or as a, as a relic of a anti-Catholic past, but it is, but they don't see that. And That's so a good point, to, yeah. So we have to, you know, raise our consciousness a little bit. There's a lot of education that has to be, that has to be done. And, uh, and as you say, we don't want to be, we're stressed out enough already, so. Archbishop, <laughs> is there a particular saint or devotion that you have that helps, helps ease you when you're stressed or helps you with your dedication to religious liberty? Uh, who's your patron saint? Well, I have many patrons. Uh, you know, John Paul II, who named me a bishop, is certainly one that I turn to in prayer, and he's a great inspiration to me because I'm Polish. I used to tell people I knew the Pope was infallible because he was Polish. <laughs> <laughs> great. I like it. <laughs> but, uh, but at the same time, uh, Thomas More, I, I have to preach almost two or three homilies every year to, to the lawyers the red masses. We have you know, we have a red mass in Tallahassee for the whole state of Florida. Then in, uh, in my archdiocese, because we're spread out, I have a red mass in Broward County, Fort Lauderdale area, another one in Miami, another one in Monroe County and Key West. So I'm often uh, thinking about and preaching about Thomas More and, and John Fisher. So those are certainly uh, patrons that we have to remember. 
even John the Baptist, and people don't think of it this way, but you know, John the Baptist was a martyr for the tea, for, for what he was saying about marriage. People don't think of it that way, you know. Mm. John martyr and John the Baptist lost his head because he was teaching the truth about marriage, which got uh, you know King Herod's wife all upset, got her mm. daughter, her daughter, give me his head on a platter. And today, you know, when we witness the truth about marriage. There are lots of people that are demanding our heads on platters. So true. Archbishop Winsky, thank you for uh, taking this time to join us. And it's it's been good talking with you. I know we'll have a chance to talk again, you and I, at, the, at, our, at our upcoming committee meeting next month. And I, I look forward to um, us, you know, working together on how we can, on, especially on this education piece. Is, I think that that's part of our, our job. Uh, at the USCCB trying to help educate. So um, I, I look forward to us working together. So again, thanks for, thanks for joining. Thank you. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.